1: and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, here to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and the projects. And we've got an interesting topic lined up today. And, in fact, it's one of my favorite ones to talk about. <clears throat> and our guest who's coming on, your topic I have been on before, I would like to let you all know about it. if I start getting a little bit quiet during the show, it could be because uh, I did go to a dentist earlier this week, and it looks like I've got a mild form of bruxism, where I hope it's just mild, but it's been incredibly painful. I was just telling my guest. I've gone the past 24 hours without screaming, so that's good. I'm a trooper trying to push through, but your prayers are greatly appreciated at this time. But my guest is Dee Dee Warren again. She was here back in January, if you remember, talking about her experience with abortion and today we're talking about something that's been a passion of hers for some time and that's eschatology now who is Dee Dee? Dee Dee is a veteran of online theology debates, having owned theologyweb.com for over a decade as well as hosting the Preterist site and the Preterist podcast which were the catalyst for her publication of It's Not the End of the World which is a book we're discussing today and she is presently involved in libertarian political activism Dee Dee welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast
0: Ah, thank you very much. As you know, I'm very happy to be here.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, if people aren't familiar with your last visit on here, they don't know much about you. Tell us about who you are, like how you got to be doing this.
0: Well, when you mean this, I'm wondering if, you, if you're referring to the book or uh, eschatology, apologetics, and I'm assuming you yes. are. Okay. I I came to be doing this as I, I tend to, whenever I adopt any particular worldview, I guess you would say, I, I tend to like to ruthlessly chase down facts, as particularly if something troubles me. And very early in my Christian walk, there were some biblical passages that troubled me and I embarked upon a journey to try to resolve them and now you know nearly 20 years later I've got a book out <laughs> I've got a mm-hmm. book out on it that took about 10 years to write but that's I hope that answers your question but that's basically how I became involved in this subject mm-hmm. just embarking upon a personal study and then decided to be pretty useful to share it with everybody else
1: okay well, let's look into this personal study some first off when we say eschatology, for some people out there who might not be familiar with theological vocabulary, what are we talking about?
0: Well, it's, a, it's, it's a $10 word, I suppose. And it, it simply means the, the study. I mean, technically it means the study of last things or the end times. Mm-hmm. But more broadly, it would be the study of biblical prophecy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the simple way I'd put it. It yes. could be parsed out a lot more Complicated, but I think that yeah. suffices.
1: Yeah, we could also say there is an area called personal eschatology, such as what happens to each individual when they die, and that's included under eschatology.
0: Yes, it would be. That that's not generally what I focus on. Yeah. Right. But yes, that would be.
1: Now, your area of interest of general eschatology, the study of end times. How did that get started exactly?
0: <clears> hmm. <throat> I maybe I might be not answering precisely what you're asking, but here we go. It got started well, I mean it, it, exactly it would have been in just I was doing one of those read through the Bible in a year programs, mm-hmm. and oh God, I probably was a Christian what a year or under a year, and I just kept running across verses that appeared to be in conflict with what my church was teaching, and for a while, I just pushed them aside. Figuring that there, you know, answers would come. When you're new, you don't understand everything, but those verses remained a problem. Mm-hmm. And as I learned more and asked more, I wasn't satisfied. So it led to pushing deeper.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. if there was one verse that troubled you though, it was Matthew twenty four thirty four. Could you tell us what that verse is and why it was so troubling?
0: Uh, I'd like to back up a tiny bit, though, because I, I, okay. I have mentioned this before. Maybe I didn't make this entirely clear in the book. Matthew twenty four thirty four is, in fact, you know, one of the verses that generally leads people in that direction. Uh-huh. But oddly enough, it wasn't Matthew at all that started me questioning uh the typical, and I don't even like using that word, but the most popular Christian eschatology. It was actually First Corinthians fifteen that was a whole lot more pivotal, pivotal, pivotal to me. <laughs> I said pivotal. Well, we'll make that word up. Why not? Uh, but but Matthew twenty four thirty four, I would say, would be the most common one that people run into, and, and of course, I did run into that soon soon after. And Matthew twenty four thirty four is when Jesus is speaking to his disciples about things that most Christians believe are in our future. Um, They think he's talking about the second coming and the end of the world and all the events in the book of Revelation. And he caps it off by telling his disciples, most assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. And just on the face of it, even the most hardcore futurist or person who disagrees with me would have to admit that on the face of it, the case is mine. That verse does appear to say that the people standing there listening to him wouldn't die until whatever he just talked about took place. And, and I submit that is, in fact, what he was saying, that right. the, the plain reading is indeed the true reading on this, on this one.
1: Mm-hmm. And what was about 1 Corinthians 15 that troubled you?
0: First Corinthians, I'm not going to be able to quote it off the top of my head and I've got such bad eyesight that sometimes looking at these tiny print Bibles is difficult for me. But First Corinthians 15, is talking about the sequence of events leading to the eternal state. And it seemed to me when I read it that it very clearly was stating that after Christ was raised himself, that he was presently reigning, that the period of time we were living in right now was the messianic reign, that it wasn't put off to some future millennium, and that at the end of this period of time, death would be destroyed, and that would be the end of earthly history of any form. So there was no room for a millennium. And that started me get so I started questioning premillennialism before I started questioning futurism, though I think those two are pretty tied together. But that that really started me down down the road. And I still think first Corinthians fifteen is very strong on that point.
1: Now your view is what we call preterism a lot of people have a lot of thoughts when they hear that thing because they keep thinking wait wait, are you telling me that everything has already happened that there is no prophecy to be fulfilled whatsoever that the resurrection of the dead has already taken place in women new heavens and new earth that's not what you're saying is it
0: no that's not at all what i'm saying um and and I think I might have lost you in the question a little bit there, (laughs) but what I I am saying is we are still awaiting the the future, I like referring to it as the final advent, I think the word coming in the Bible is very equivocal and isn't necessarily the best terminology for us to use so we're awaiting the final advent and Mm -hmm. we're awaiting our resurrection, in fact the resurrection of all who lived so those certain major events are in our future, but certain other events that a lot of us have been taught to think is in our future, such as the Great Tribulation, is in fact uh, events that had already passed, and they are not directly related to the final advent and the resurrection the way that most Christians think. And that is the, mm-hmm. the thesis of my book and what I set out to prove.
1: Now, in your book, you contend also about people who do hold that everything has already happened there's no future prophecy that they're actually teaching a heresy and they fall outside of salvation but people who would disagree with you and say be futurists and dispensationalists and such they don't fall outside of salvation right
0: i would clarify that nick okay. i don't i make i make a clear distinction between damnable heresy and mm-hmm. damned heretics Okay I don't make any kind of salvation calls on on anybody. Mm-hmm. I can I can't judge that and within my particular reform tradition, um, you know God's gonna make that call. And he is solely responsible for that. So I judge doctrine. I don't judge people. And I kind of do that on everything. Mm -hmm. But this heresy is indeed a damnable heresy. It's not a Christian doctrine. And the doctrine falls outside the historic Christian faith.
1: Now, some people would say, okay, well, if this isn't a salvation issue or anything like that, What's the point of talking about the second coming on an apologetics podcast?
0: Well, I also didn't say it wasn't a salvation issue. What I said is I leave... I leave the ultimate judgment of people who hold very mistaken ideas up to God. Okay. Um, but I do consider it essential Christian doctrine. That, that Perhaps this point I'm making, some people will think it's silly, um, but it is one that I make. But I do think it is a salvational issue in that I do believe that if you, if, if you hold it, if you hold it and don't, oh, how am I going to word this? I think a lot of people... God considers mitigating factors. We believe a lot of mistaken things that might be terribly wrong, but God takes the totality of the circumstances. Like, for instance, and I hope this doesn't shock people, I firmly believe there are saved people within the Jehovah's Witnesses, but denying the deity of Christ is a salvation issue. But we don't know why these people believe it, and there are factors that God might take into consideration. Mm -hmm. So I think we, we have to teach saving doctrine and leave the salvational determination up to God. So I do think this is a a, a doctrine that falls within critical Christian doctrine just as much as the deity of Christ does.
1: Mm-hmm. But what does this have to do with apologetics?
0: It has to do with a well, it has to do with apologetics in that all essential Christian doctrine does, but it also has to do with apologetics in that the veracity of Jesus and the Bible itself can, can, can die on this sword. There are so many timing statements that if you explain them away, it's just not believable. And such as in Deuteronomy 18, we're told the test of a false prophet. So if Jesus said something that clearly didn't happen, we have every reason to reject every other one of his claims.
1: And also we can consider our skeptics like... Bertrand Russell, for instance, said, "I cannot trust Jesus if he cannot even be right about the time of his own return."
0: Exactly, and as I have said multiple times, this Matthew twenty four thirty four is a primary tool in the skeptical toolbox, and being able to diffuse that. While I don't think you're ever going to argue anyone into faith, it does take one thing out of that particular arsenal. And and I've said that if I were to become an atheist tomorrow, I would never make that argument that this verse somehow disproves the Bible, because I think that there's a completely rational, logical argument to show that it, in fact, does not. And I've had skeptics and atheists who've conceded that point to me. While they're not certainly not Christians, they have other issues. They, you know, Everyone should be willing to give up a bad argument, even right. if it's something on our side. There are plenty of bad arguments for Christianity, oh, yes. too.
1: <clears throat> you might be amused i this story, but I did used to work at the Christian Research Institute, which is Hank Hanegraaff's organization. And this was when I was a student at SES also. And Michael Shermer came there to do a debate against Dinesh D'Souza one time, and he went out afterwards with some people that worked at CRI. Also, I wasn't a part of it, but you know Hank Hanagraph recently came with the same kind of interpretation around that time. He didn't want to say he was a preterist, but every one of us was going, yeah, that that's what you are. In fact, when they were interviewing me for the position at CRI, he said, are there uh, any doctrines at SES or such that you uh, held a particular fondness for? And I said, I'm a preterist. So I said, oh, okay, we can move on then. But, <laughs> but anyway, when Michael Shermer was with him, they went called together, and he, the very first question that I was told he asked him was, how can you believe in Jesus when he didn't get the time of his coming right? And when they told him his response, he was, myself, huh, never heard that before.
0: Yeah, and that's unfortunate I, I yeah. and I, I I tend to think that this particular passage rather than being one that is a weak point of Christianity I think it's actually one of the strongest points of it
1: yeah um, I'm trying to remember the name of a book right now but it's one ri- written back in the 1800s you probably know it very well yes,
0: yes. it's called uh, the destruction of Jerusalem the uh, an irrefutable proof of the divine origin of Christianity. I think yes. I have that pretty close. Those, those yes. long book titles from the 1800s crack me up. Yeah,
1: so this, this is no new doctrine that's shown up on the scene. In fact, I think Eusebius held something similar, didn't he?
0: He held certain portions of it. I'm very reluctant to call anybody from the early church a sy- systematic preterist. Mm-hmm. There were certainly preterist strains. Yeah. Um, a lot of things weren't particularly systematized back then. Mm-hmm. And I, I think preterists who who make that claim are are biting off a bit more than they can support.
1: Yeah. Couldn't we say the interesting aspect of this, that people are looking at this like if this is a strange new doctrine from their perspective is that historically pre trib rapture is a strange new doctrine, isn't it?
0: Um, it is a new one. It strange would be in the eye of the beholder. I think ah. it's a strange mm. doctrine, but it is fairly new within... I really stink at math, so now I'm trying to... What's it, the late 1800s? So that would make it, what, within 200 years?
1: I think it's the 1830s, so I'd make it about 180 years.
0: Okay, so within 200 years would yeah. be something fair to mm. say. <laughs> so, and I know, I believe it was Thomas Ice, I might be getting my name mistaken, it might have been LaHaye, um, who had argued that they found some you know, traces of of pre-tribulationism and the shepherd of Hermas and things like that but I uh, have looked at that and found that extremely a stretch and not even in any kind of nascent form was there any kind of pre-trib rapture type idea in the early church so while there may just have been strands of preterism in the early church there isn't a whiff of pre-trib rapturism in the early church not that that makes it wrong um, but it is something to point out and I always think you know when I come to conclude. Conclusions that seem to be at odds with most of the Christians around me. I usually step back and go, I'm probably wrong because I'm not that much. I'm not that much. I just even I know I'm not at all smarter, you know, than my than my companions. And if I'm coming up with something that no one ever thought before,
1: Mm -hmm. uh,
0: is that's a good indication that I'm probably going off the plantation a bit.
1: Well, let's get into the book. Now this is a commentary on matthew twenty four Could you tell us what matthew twenty four is really hmm.
0: what, what do you mean uh, well, uh. I mean like it, what what's being talked about? Okay, Matthew
1: 24.
0: and Matthew twenty four is primarily uh, only because there is there is a I think a, a dividing point in it, so that's why you stumped me a little bit there. But the the part that I deal with at least up to verse thirty four, Jesus is is dealing with his statement to the disciples in which he told them that the temple that was then standing was mm-hmm. going to be destroyed. In fact, destroyed to the point that there would be not one stone left upon another that shall not be thrown down, and that's what prompted the disciples questions and that's what Jesus proceeded to answer and we lose track of that I think a lot of us today when we're reading that passage and sometimes these chapter divisions and the way we read the Bible where we'll read a section and then such as that read through the Bible in a year program. While it's wonderful to read through the Bible in a year, sometimes, you know, saying I'm going to read, you know, a psalm and this thing out of the Old Testament and this thing out of the New Testament might not be the best way to read the Bible. If you if you start from the beginning of Matthew and and you go through the entire flow, it becomes a whole lot more clear. But going off the trail I think a bit here. Um so Jesus told them that it would be destro- the temple then standing would be destroyed. The disciples ask him some questions. He proceeds to answer those questions, which ends with that statement: "Most assuredly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place." And in fact, the temple then standing was in fact destroyed within that generation, which should also be a very big indicator to us that those events, everything. Up to that point, is, it, it, he was talking about the destruction of the temple.
1: Well, we're going to get to the this generation at the end, since that's kind of like the clinch pen that's going to sum everything up together. But the to start, I'm thinking part of the problem with what we we're talking about also is that too often we read the Bible as if it was written to us and not understanding a lot of the context something i've told my wife before for instance is Hun, when you read the old testament i want you to stop being a christian at first because i want her to look at the text and say okay if i was a jew living at the time and i didn't know anything about jesus which no jew would have known what would i think about this text what would it mean to me now then after that you can put on your christian hat and say "Ah, oh, now i see what the text means more in light of Jesus. But the text has a meaning even before Jesus comes along. And when we read the Bible, we often do read, not like Jews of a time, but like 21st century Americans.
0: Right. The Bible, it was written to us, but it wasn't written firstly to us. It was written firstly to the people who had it directly in their hands. Mm -hmm. And while I believe in fuller context and fuller revelation and things such as that it did have to mean something to the people it was originally written to and mm-hmm. it is incumbent upon us to, to find out what that was first because you can't possibly have a fuller revelation unless you, you, you get what it originally meant otherwise you're expanding upon something that never existed
1: Okay, we are talking about a little bit then about the stretching of a temper why would this be such a big deal for these sidebars that they would start asking questions about it
0: we we have to put ourselves in the mindset of ancient Jewish people in order to understand that, um, and it, it does require even a lot of Old Testament background. Um, the temple was was the the physical symbol of God dwelling amongst His people and of His blessing, and. In order for that to be removed from them, they, the Jewish people always understood that as a sign of extreme disfavor and extreme judgment and of God withdrawing in some real sense. Mm-hmm. So that was catastrophic to them. Mm-hmm. And it, it had happened in the past, and to, to know it was going to happen again was just extremely traumatic. And this particular temple was glorious. It was just such a beautiful wonder that it was almost incomprehensible to them that it would, it would be destroyed. In fact, just raised and taken down to nothing. And the, the, I, I, you know, as you know, I appeared on Chris Dates show a couple weeks ago. So some of what I say will be a little bit of a repeat,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: I, I think it bears repeating. I think as Americans, this will not be parallel exactly, but I think as Americans, we could understand this a little bit if we step back and think about the psychic trauma to the our nation that happened on 9-11. Oh yeah. Because those twin towers were a very visible sign of a lot of things we hold. Mm-hmm. dear whether we should or not's another question that we hold dear as americans and and the taking down of those was a real trauma to our national psyche mm-hmm. we still feel it today everyone who was alive at that time will feel it till the day they die and the t- it, magnify that by tenfold because you're dealing even more in a religious context as to what the temple meant to the people then, and particularly because they were under Roman rule. So this was something that they were holding on to, you know, as a symbol of their unique Jewish identity. It was very, very important to them in and, and more ways than we can even possibly understand. But that parallel, I think, could give us a little taste of what it meant to them.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you and I were in New York together, say, on September 11th of 2000, and we stopped and looked at the Twin Towers, and we left, and I said, Dee Dee, one year from now, these are going to be destroyed. Regardless of what you think of the towers, such. you think, okay, if that happens, something pretty severe has happened
0: yeah not only destroyed but i mean i think the parallels even closer than we think within the space of hours i mean they were reduced to nothing mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know yeah that would have been that you, that that right there is a the symbol of a american pride and capitalism and success and you know freedom and that was a tremendous blow the 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 jewish temple was the sign of god's presence of their unique jewish identity um it was the in the heart of Jerusalem, of the Holy City. I mean, there's the, the, the taking away of that and the fact that it still has never been rebuilt is an incredibly significant event. And unless we can get into the mind of a first-century Jewish person, we will not understand why this was just so terrible.
1: Well, let's look at some of the things that Jesus said would happen before this uh, generation passes away to see if these did happen in the first century because if they didn't then we've got a problem here but one thing he said would happen would be false Christ now Needy, I can turn on the news today and I can see so many people are standing up and saying I'm Jesus I am the second coming on and on and on so I mean we've got false Christ going on today doesn't that fit with uh, what Jesus was talking about
0: Okay, there's so many ways to to come at that. The existence of false prophets and false Christ today doesn't mean that is specifically what Jesus was referring to particularly again because we have a timing statement here. Um he he never said that that would be unique to any particular time. If in any religion, you're going to have false professors and people coming and making false claims. So I don't think we can pull that out of the, the the first century and say because it's also happening today, that means that's what Jesus was talking about. The fact is there's been false Christ since Christ died. I mean this has been constant going on for two thousand years, so modern ones don't prove it any more than, you know, no offense to my Mormon friends, than than Joseph Smith's false prophecies in the eighteen hundreds. Mhm
1: but did they have those false cries back then?
0: Oh, they most certainly did and I detail quite a few of them in my Mm -hmm. book and one thing I have to apologize for, Nick. Um, As I get older, my memory isn't what it used to be. And rattling things off the top of my head isn't always my strong point. I've got, and I have, and <laughs> this is going to make you laugh too. I wrote this thing, but I haven't read it in a while. So a lot of, th- I always, like I said this on Chris's show, and I'll say it here. Believe what I wrote and not what I say. Um, because <laughs> I was doing a whole lot more tedious research at the time, and I'm actually trying to, um... To, to turn to that passage and I'm going to count on you to, to prompt my memory on some things but there most certainly were false mm-hmm. um, Christs and false prophets and they were in fact detailed in the New Testament uh Many historical examples of it. I don't know, you know, which ones you would like me to get into. Other than saying that, in fact, it it did happen, and I give a lot of documentation for it in the book.
1: Well, when we're saying false cries, we also don't mean people are saying, I'm saying I'm Jesus. But people are saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to lead you people to glory and such things. Some people like say Judas Galilean and the unknown Egyptian and Simon Bar Kokba, for instance
0: yeah i G, G, the 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 term of false christ doesn't doesn't require anyone standing up and literally saying I am jesus it's people literally standing up or making claims of being able to do the things and fulfill the things that the Old Testament idea of a messiah would would require and um, also within the whole idea of Jewish messiahship was this Um, you know, he said false, so they don't necessarily have to be we realize now, let let me back check, we realize now that Jesus didn't come to lead a political revolution. But that was one of the strands of expectations in the first century. It was a false expectation, but it was an expectation. So these pseudo religious political revolutionaries that came up after Christ, claiming that they were going to redeem the people through political means, certainly qualify as false Christ.
1: What about wars and rumors of wars? Because in our day and age, there's probably a war going on somewhere, everywhere in the world right now. We've had, in the 20th century, we had World War One, World War Two, we have the Korean War, we have the Vietnam War, we have the Iraqi War. There have been so many wars. Why why shouldn't we think Jesus is talking about our times, since we have so many wars?
0: And I'm going to start to sound like a broken record, but there has always been a ton of wars and rumors mm-hmm. of wars. There is, I, I would argue that there isn't any particularly more today than there, than there has been throughout the average of history. Mm-hmm. But what I mention in the book is something you have to understand. If war is pretty much a constant state, unfortunately, of, of, of humans, a sign, uh, a, a, giving a sign of wars and rumors of wars would only be significant in a time of relative peace. Mm-hmm. otherwise there's always been wars and in fact when jesus was was speaking the roman empire at that time was in a time of relative peace so that all of a sudden an outbreak of wars and insurrections and commotions and things such as that would be a sign because the peace was being broken and in fact you know in, in the period of time after jesus's death that 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 tr- that relatively tranquil period of roman history was broken in all kinds of just abysmal atrocities were, were were breaking out we today unfortunately are very ignorant I think of, of history and we tend to place ourselves in the center of history right. but I quote a lot of historical sources in the section on wars and rumors of wars and you know we, I hate to keep going back to 9-11, but we were really upset by that and thousands died. Under 5,000 died. In the meantime, you read some of these historical accounts and in just these little outbreaks, you know, that they just took as the news of the day, there was 10 and 20,000 people being slaughtered. Mm -hmm. In fact, that happens even today. We have a very, to the listeners of your show that are American, have a very American-centric view and we think the things that happen to us are necessarily the worst, but even is you know, elsewhere in the world much worse things are happening and have throughout history, and war today can be particularly terrible when you start thinking about things like you know bombing Japan, but the wars back then all of them were particularly terrible. We do not understand today the absolute brutality because we like. I'm sorry that some of my speech goes off into political things. I can't help it. You're just going to have to forgive me for that. We today like our wars nice and clean by just droning people. But back then, siege warfare, we can't even imagine what that was like. Mm -hmm. Having your city surrounded and starved out, which is what happened in the Siege of Jerusalem where you're eating your children. I mean, we cannot even possibly imagine the utter brutality of the typical warfare that happened back then. Mm -hmm.
1: Famine is another thing you discussed here, and that's probably something we can't relate to as well, because we in America, we can uh, do this bizarre thing where we just open the refrigerator and the cabinet doors and say, there's nothing to eat, and we don't mean it's completely empty. We mean, there's nothing I want right now. Let's go get some fast food.
0: Exactly. I mean, and famine and war went hand in hand back then, because, again, if you were in a city, the, the most common means of warfare was, in fact, surrounding and starving you out mm-hmm. and um, we, we, we tend today if we haven't had enough to eat in a couple of days to go oh I'm starving but these sometimes these, these sieges could last years I mean there literally was nothing mm-hmm. um, we can't imagine the depths of desperation mm-hmm. so you know getting back to the main topic though I certain, there certainly were wars and rumors of wars back then and it was meaningful as a sign because the si- uh, a time of peace Uh, was was interrupted but that's not to discount that we don't have wars and rumors of wars (laughs) today as well but that just isn't necessarily what was being referred to in in Jesus' prophecy and I I said this to Chris I I don't have much sympathy when I don't have this probably sounds terrible I don't have that much sympathy to people today who are ignorant of history and want to point to we have it good today we have it oh, yeah. very good today. And people will keep talking about, you know, how the just world's going to uh okay, I won't use that, to heck in a handbasket are just so ignorant of history. If, if there was any generation or, or time period of Christians that I would have had a lot of sympathy for them saying that they thought that, in fact, they were at the end of the world, were been the Christians that lived during the Black Death. When two-thirds of your neighbors are, are dying in that kind of horrific manner by something you absolutely do not understand, I will excuse your doomsday worldview. Mm-hmm. I do not excuse it too much today, not particularly from... Uh, relatively rich, fat Americans.
1: And we could probably say the same thing about first century Christians who were anticipating Jesus to come back and instead found themselves being set on fire by Nevo. Exactly.
0: Now, I mean, that's not to discount the stuff that's going on. T- some, you know, And certainly not in the Middle East where where Christians are, in fact, legitimately being um, persecuted. Yeah. But I, I sometimes just don't have that much toleration for some of our... Um, western uh,
1: idiosyncrasies
0: uh, idiosyncrasies yes yeah. and persecution complex that's mm. just my particular thing yeah
1: and now one aspect i need to look at modern times in that same passage because this is one people refer to is talk about earthquakes because so many people today are like look the number of earthquakes we have is increasing and increasing and increasing So that means that Jesus' prophecy is coming fulfilled right now.
0: Well, for one thing, he didn't say that earthquakes would be increasing in frequency. Um, They're they're taking that from the birth pang analogy, and I I go through a lot of that showing the way Mm -hmm. birth pang analogy was used throughout Scripture, and I think that's a completely illegitimate way to look at it. But the fact is, we... um, earthquakes really haven't been increasing in frequency and intensity. Um, it's a pretty routine up and down cycle throughout the geology of the earth. Mm-hmm. We just know about them more. All yeah. of the stuff that now that we can turn on the internet and find out has been going on in other parts of the world has always yeah. been going on in yeah. other parts of the world. We just know about it now.
1: Yeah. Uh, a couple of months ago I remember telling Allie about how the Vietnam War changed our view of war so much, and said, you know why it did that? Why? Television. We could exactly. turn it on and see what was happening."
0: And uh, there, there were plenty of very bad historical earthquakes during that period of time. Now, this one wouldn't qualify. Well, what's the uh, when was Pompeii? Actually, that was before eighty seventy. If you do any kind of uh, it was historical research
1: on AD, it was a volcanic eruption.
0: Yes. But mm-hmm. there was an earthquake involved with, with that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's earthquakes recorded in, in the New Testament. Earthquakes happen. Yes.
1: Um,
0: the, the birth pang analogy is dealing more with the increasing pressure and intensity to the birth of a judgment, mm-hmm. not having to do with literal more earthquakes.
1: Yeah. In fact, when you say that, we just have more knowledge about them happening now and more aware of them. I have to point out to people that, for instance, since I debate mythicists a lot, that with 79 AD we have the destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum, and hardly any historian of the time mentions it. The, time, the only one we have of the time we really referring to it is Pliny the Younger, and an off the cuff remarked, Cassie Tessler is pretty much saying, hey, how's your uncle die? Oh, he got too close to that volcano. And it isn't until Cassius around the first century that we hear talk of, oh, yeah, by the way, Herculaneum was destroyed. And this was a quarter of a million people dying in this.
0: Yeah. I mean, today, when at least, you know, in more developed countries we have earthquakes, we have mm. ways to rescue people that were didn't exist back then. Yep. I mean, we got to put ourselves into the in, in, into the context of pre-modern society to, to understand the significance of these things and there, there was one quote I was searching for in my book um, that, that, that from Seneca just talking about the earthquakes of that time and he had said how often the cities of Africa and Achaia have been f- fallen with one fatal shock how many cities have been swallowed up in Syria? How many in Macedonia? How often have Pathos become a ruin? News has often brought of the demolition demolition of whole cities at once. That sounds pretty extreme to me.
1: And I'm also thinking that, I think probably back in the 1700s or so. Volca-
0: Are you chainsawing somebody to death?
1: No, there was someone outside <laughs> doing some weed eating. I'm going to have, to have a talk with them about that feeling. But back in the 1700s, Votel wrote his Candide and one of the aspects of that was that an earthquake had destroyed Lisbon I believe at the time with about 185,000 people and he was arguing against the idea that this is the best possible world out there. Yeah, look at this earthquake and tell me that.
0: Yeah. Precisely. Um, Yeah, I don't really know that there's much more I could say about that other than you know we here 's the point I have to make when when we take and, and this is going i 'm going to sound like a broken record because everything yeah. you' brought up i 'm going to say a lot of the same things, but it's a consistent interpretation. We have to take the Bible on its own terms right we we need to look at the language as it was used then. Some of the language we use today is going to seem very bizarre to people 2,000 years from now. And the same thing is going to be true of us looking back on the way they used language back then. So we have to compare Scripture with Scripture to determine what these idiomatic phrases meant, Mm -hmm. how they would have been interpreted back then, and to put ourselves into their particular world, which is how you take the Bible on its own terms. It might be a whole lot more exciting to think that we're the center of prophecy but at least this particular prophecy but we're not if you take the bible on its own terms you just cannot come to that conclusion and the fact is every you know this is just a vanity of humans uh, nearly every generation has thought they were the final generation Yeah. and we're no different
1: we are moving on to the next few verses because we've got a lot of ground to cover And this is about the persecutions and lawlessness and apostasy. I was riding with my mother (coughs) earlier this week because my teeth were in such bad pain and she lives next door to me and said, could you take me to the dentist because if I start screaming I don't want to lose control or something like that. And we started talking on the way and we did talk about end times and she said, well, I just think that the world's never been as bad off as it is right now. I mean, you look at everything that's going on in our world, and it's just horrible. I said, Mom, do you really know about first century world, about what was going on? I mean, you have, for instance, little children being left out to die, being eaten by wild animals just for the great crime of being female, and so many other things going on at the time. That I said, look, what we're going through right now—it's it, nothing new. It's happened before.
0: That is indeed true. Mm. Um, and uh, how I, sometimes I stumble over my 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 own tongue, and I realize there's this, like you hear the shuffling noise on my mic, and I'm really sorry. I, I wear reading glasses, and I've got one of those chains around it, and I'm trying to get it away from my mic, so I'm sorry about that distracting sound. Mm -hmm. We indeed do have it in so many ways much better than any other... time period um as you know my my perspective tends to be more post-millennial and people have a difficulty with that thinking how can you think the world's getting is going to get better i say to them how do you think how can you possibly think it hasn't if i lived in the first century the chances are i'd have been dead by now probably from childbirth or at least a good chance from childbirth and that i would have suffered the loss of four you know, three or four children before the age of 10. Um, you, you mentioned dentistry. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Can you imagine having a cavity in the first century? Oh, gosh. Slavery was rampant. We, I mean, there still is some pockets of slavery in the world today, and I would argue, never mind, I don't want to get off on another political tangent, that there's slavery of a different kind. But human chattel slavery was completely commonplace back then. I mean, in almost any single thing that you can name we're better off today I think it's just extremely ungrateful and I I don't get that attitude I I would choose to live today rather than any other period of time and I'm sure 400 years from now and yes I do think we'll still be around 10,000 years from now at least biblically speaking, I think that sometimes I get a little pessimistic thinking we're just going to nuke ourselves off the planet if we continue yeah. with our wars. But biblically speaking, I think we have every case to think that we will spread to other planets and colonize the universe. Um, I would, uh, If I had the choice to say, would you like to live a thousand years from now? Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. because it's going to be even that much better.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, actually, biblically speaking, I agree with you on the more post-millennial bent and when people tell me, but look at how bad things are getting in America. Say, look, America's not the world. Look at how things are going in China. Look at how the church is growing in the third world. And if America falls, well, geez, that's hard, but America falls. But it, the gospel doesn't need America. It's America that needs the gospel.
0: Yeah, I mean... We I, I, Sometimes I wish that some of us could, could be put back into the Roman Empire to, to see how um, people thought that that could never fail and that that was the center the center of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, in the wide arc of is- history, I do think things are, are, are getting better. And I think some of the things that Christians think are necessarily getting so terrible in... Um, in America, really aren't really necessarily that terrible. It's a, it's us losing certain political power that we never had business to be looking for in the first place, um, and I think if you think through things through a kingdom lens, and uh, it it's just not tenable.
1: And when I'm talking with people about all these things going on about what we say is like the Bible says like a the uh, gospel grows like a mustard seed, like yeast working its way through dough, and I don't see any interruption taking place in that.
0: Well, you know, there could be. I'm not saying there is, yes. but I'm just saying that there could be, even mm-hmm. for several hundred years, you have to judge history yeah. on, on, on a mm-hmm. wide arc. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think the only downside I could think of being in the future is probably what I was thinking today It's jeez, I've got so many books today that I want to read, and I know I'll never get to read all of them. And when you're done being 400 years or 1,000 years, and I think, gosh, how many more will be then that I wouldn't get (laughs) (laughs)
0: to? Yep, you and I are liking that.
1: Let's go to the next part, then, because this one gets us more into something that people are going to say, okay, now you're definitely not going with what the text says. That's what it says and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come well Didi there are so many unreached people groups out there right now that haven't heard the gospel so this couldn't have been fulfilled in the first century
0: well this is actually one of the easiest passages which is funny because it's one of the ones that's most often brought up as an objection Mm -hmm. but here's where we have to take the text on its own terms Mm -hmm. um to us yes that that does sound as if there's no way that could possibly have been fulfilled yet, if we go to other sections of scripture, um, particularly the apostle Paul, um, he says in, in, in Romans, I believe it 's one one eight um he he says to the church in Rome, I, I thank God that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Mm-hmm. Do we really think that the American Indians were just blabbing to themselves about the faith of the Roman church? But yet Paul indeed said that it, their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. Later on in Romans, um, he says that the prophetic scriptures have been made known to all nations. Really? the Aztecs knew about the scriptures no that's not how the word that's not how the phrase throughout the whole world known to all nations in fact Paul said that the gospel has in his lifetime already been preached not only to, to all nations to every creature under heaven if we're going to take that that's hyperliterally that's yeah. yes if we're going to take that hyperliterally we would think that Paul intended that we'd be preaching to the salamanders mm-hmm. but that's not what was meant by that he meant Roman, the Roman, their known world, the, the, the Roman Empire, the people that, that made up their familiar territory. We often um, speak in this kind of terminology today, too, mm. but even if we didn't, the fact is, there are numerous scriptures that use this exact same terminology and make it clear it was something that already existed in the first century. It was mm-hmm. something that was being already being fulfilled in Paul's lifetime.
1: In fact, another analogy that, that we could use is, when we look at Luke 2, it said that Caesar now decreed that all the world should be taxed. So, the people from China were coming over, delivering their taxes, and...
0: Right, and that obviously didn't happen. And, mm. and this language comes from the Old Testament. Um, I'd give numer- numerous examples in the book of where a similar language was used in in, in in the Old Testament. For the one I really like a lot is when it said in First Kings, "All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon." Really, the entire earth came to seek the presence of Solomon. Mm-hmm. Or the people from all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. really the mexicans came to buy grain from from joseph so now we see that this terminology means the known world to the direct audience Mm
1: -hmm. now when we get to verse 15 we start getting more and more into areas of debate and that's where we hear talk about the abomination of desolation what are we talking about
0: here (laughs) I believe what we are talking about there. I actually, I think there's many layers to that, but the primary meaning of that is we got to remember. And you're reading from Matthew 24 that there are parallel accounts. So the the exact same discourse mm-hmm. was repeated. It was told. It was in Luke's gospel. It's given in a slightly different wording. Luke 21, and also in Mark 13, and Luke, as most people generally agree some will disagree but it's my position that he tends to translate a lot of the jewish idioms into gentile speak mm-hmm. for a more gentile audience in the parallel verse in luke where matthew talks about the abomination of desolation in luke twenty-one twenty, luke records jesus's words as but when you see jerusalem surrounded by armies know that it's the desolation is near mm-hmm. so I believe that Luke t- is telling us that the abomination of desolation is the desecration of, the, uh, of Jerusalem by the surrounding armies. That was the abomination of desolation.
1: Now, to be fair, there are some preterists who would disagree with that also. They'd point to events happening in the temple, such as some of the things that some of the zealots were doing and trying to change the priesthood and things like that as being the abomination.
0: I don't think these, those two things are mutually exclusive. Okay. I don't think that you can deny that the, that at least part of the abomination of desolation is mm-hmm. Jerusalem surrounded by armies. You can't. Luke mm. specifically makes that connection. I do not believe that exhausts the meaning mm. of abomination of desolation. So I don't think we would. Dis- I would disagree with those other preterists. Yes. Um, I'm just saying that the, the the visible sign that everyone could see. Um, And the thing that told the Christians to flee was Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, which brings up a very remarkable historical event. Because to me, I know I would say, wouldn't once you are surrounded be a little bit too late to flee? (laughs) I mean, that's the whole point of being surrounded. Mm -hmm. But what had happened is Jerusalem was surrounded, and then at least to the inhabitants of, of the city, inexplicably, they retreated. And the Christians, at that point, took the um took took the initiative to flee. Mm-hmm. And this can't be proven, but the the certain historical writers from that time make the claim that no Christian perished in the siege of Jerusalem, not one can't prove that. But it is a historical claim that was made, and certainly not great numbers of them did or that would have been noted. So the Christians took. Took that phrase to mean that they they understood that when this happened, the minute you had an opportunity, bleak and they did.
1: You know that gets us perfectly to the next part here because uh, a couple of weeks ago, I remember I was at Walmart and I was checking out an order, and there was an elderly lady in front of me who was finishing hers and she got into a conversation with the cashier and they start talking about the bible so my ears perk up at this point and this lady this elderly lady says you know i've been thinking about this passage all day and i can't figure out what it means but it's it's you know where jesus is talking about the end of time I mean, okay this is going to be interesting and he says pray that your flight be not in the winter and i i just don't know what to make sense of that no i heard that I was right behind her so i started talking to her about it and you know that whole passage says pray at your flight not being the winter pray that you the women don't be pregnant at the time and that it not take place in the sabbath so i'm pretty sure you can say what kind of answer i would give so but what would you say to someone who was looking and saying what does that mean that your flight not being the winter and can you tie it in with everything else too
0: Our answers might be a little bit different, I don't know, but my position would be that this again is a a clear indicator that we're talking about an event that's going to happen in a pre-technological society, because frankly today, um, being pregnant while uncomfortable is nowhere near the terror that it was at that time, imagine having to flee on donkey or on foot you know being nine months pregnant Mm -hmm. um in winter again Mm -hmm. i i I started to appreciate this pastor a whole uh, pastor (laughs) passage a whole lot more since moving from florida to colorado in florida let me tell you we don't know what winter is
1: no you don't (laughs) And,
0: and i would have to say the comparison between florida and colorado in modern times of me now understanding what winter actually is, mm-hmm. would probably be the difference between someone living in modern Colorado and in any kind of ancient world understanding mm-hmm. uh, what winter was is like. Mm-hmm. To have to leave during treacherous weather without having any kind of modern protections um, or prediction models or clothing um, or being able to go into a nice heated house is just something that we do not fully appreciate here unless you're living as a mountain man. Um, so, and especially since he does tell them to flee to the mountains, I can tell you that without having certain modern conveniences, the mountains, for people listening who do not live in them now that I live in Colorado, can be extremely unpleasant in the winter.
1: <laughs> and when they talk about the Sabbath, what people don't realize is that in Jerusalem, some of the gateways would be closed on the Sabbath. And so and it's, you couldn 't flee, yeah,,
0: oh, and it was not only that, the very um, hyper legalistic Jews of that time, if they saw you going more than a certain distance on the Sabbath. Yeah would try to restrain you and perhaps physically harm you. So that was another, another peril. I can tell you that today, even at the time where I lived in South Florida, which we had a very high Jewish population, I never was in fear of any Jewish person physically restraining me on the Sabbath. <laughs> this is definitely a first century concern and not a modern one.
1: Yeah, Acts 1 even mentions them traveling a Sabbath day journey.
0: Yes. So all of these are firmly placing this passage within the first century.
1: In fact, we could say if this is something that's referring to the whole world, where are you going to run to?
0: Well, see, that's the other whole thing. We we, I, we get into this later. Is that Jesus's instructions for this end of world prophecy are to leave mm-hmm. Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. A, I'd love to know how that applies to us today if we're talking about the end of the world, since we're nowhere near Jerusalem. But also, we're really—I mean, I, I I read the like the Left Behind and all that, where it has you know these these catastrophes that are destroying the entire world. Yet Jesus's instructions are to flee to the mountains outside of Jerusalem. I'm sorry, if a nuclear bomb gets dropped on Jerusalem, fleeing to the mountains is not going to save your behind.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to get into more interesting looks at what's going on here with the next couple of verses, because that's one where it talks about the great tribulation that's coming. Now, surely we can't say that the great tribulation was back then I mean today we live with a threat of nuclear war and everything else we could wipe out everyone if we wanted to how could things be so bad back then
0: Again, taking the bible on its own uh, on, on on its own terms um a it was just like we had spoken earlier it was in fact back bad back then mm-hmm. um within their context and if we're not talking about I'm I'm, kind of having trouble collecting my thoughts here. Mm -hmm. uh, Let let me rein back a little bit. That type of terminology I would call like a world-ending imagery. And that, again, is very common in the Old Testament to refer to very localized judgments where the, the writers would make it sound as if the entire universe was being destroyed. But... I would argue that we even use this terminology today, and there is a passage that I use um, that is a somewhat modern passage, but I think it, it shows that we do the exact same things today. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to use an event. I, I, I put this on my end note, and I said that remove the politics from this because it was written from a Palestinian writer and I know some people have their own opinions about that particular conflict Mm -hmm. but this poet wrote describing the death of thousands of Palestinians had described it this way dying with their eyes wide open they experienced the terror of seeing all creation men chairs suns stars tremble convulse and blue. and the dying felt and saw and knew that their death was the death of their world Mm -hmm. and that is exactly what happened in the first century? Mm. Um, it was the 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 end of their world. It was the great tribulation for to them. And I, I would have to say, when people ha, ha, say, "Well, it has to be worse than a nuclear catastrophe," I would have to say, "Well, does it have to be worse than the flood of Noah? Which, if you take literally, the whole world died except for you know a handful of people." Now I know mm. the people who hold to a global flood. I mean, a local flood that won't be persuasive. But most people who Futurized Matthew 24 also hold to a global flood. So I'd have to say, if you're have, going to have to say that this future Great Tribulation, it has to be greatest in terms of the percentage of dead, well, you're not going to beat the Great Flood for that one. Mm. I, I, I would submit that's not what it's talking about, that you can't measure the greatness of the Great Tribulation by doing a body count or a percentage count. You have to You have to measure it in terms of the effect on the local people that it was referring to and the covenantal meaning of it, the, the, the withdrawal, it, it was the end of the Old Covenant. That is absolutely catastrophic to an Old Covenant people.
1: When I wrote a review of Jerry Cornet's book, Faith versus Fact, I got to a part where we talk about how we, we interpret scripture and such. And I started looking through some old sports stories, because right? I don't read sports at all, I could care less. But I found this review of Super Bowl 22 where it says the Broncos skinned 42 to 10 and it says like worthless documents the Broncos were cut up torn apart and scattered about San Diego's Jack Murphy Stadium by Old North's favorite team and that Denver must a couple of prime opportunities have been totally self-destructed after that the slaughter was on and a tremor started Super Bowl week in San Diego a Washington earthquake ended it Yeah, there you go. Yeah. If we took that kind of terminology literally, what would we be thinking?
0: And if it was in the Bible, uh, most of modern Christians would be thinking that. Yeah. (laughs) You literally would have to be putting people through a a wood chipper. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Now, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest is Dee Dee Warren. We're talking about her book, It's Not the End of the World, a commentary on Matthew 24 and a response to pop Christian eschatology. But if you're listening next week, we're going to have Dr. Winfred Cordurin coming on, and he's going to be talking about his book, In the Beginning God, which is a case for the original monotheism, meaning that when we look back at the most primitive people chronologically, what we can find, they started off being monotheists going to be an interesting look on a subject many of us probably don't think about too much so i suggest you come back here next week for that topic it's going to be a really interesting one but uh, let's get back here to this topic here now didi with what you just said part of the problem some people will say is well look the bible says what it means and it means what it says
0: yes well i agree the thing is, what does it mean by what it says, right? Right. If, um, if I, the example I love to use, and everyone groans when they hear me say it because it's, uh, I use it all the time, but I think it's apt. If um, I say to you, it's raining cats and dogs outside, you would not be taking me for what I mean if you grabbed a kennel instead of an umbrella. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to do with the Bible. Of course yeah. it means what it says and it says what it means, but what does it mean by what it says? And we have to do that by taking taking it in the, w- in, 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 in the genre and time context and idioms and customs and manners in which it was originally written, not in, from our particularly modern way of looking at it. And I think you demonstrated very well, though, a few minutes ago, that it's not even terribly a modern way because we use the same kind of hyperbolic yeah. language today. And we know when it's not meant be um, taken hyper literally, but I have to tell you there are a few hyper literalists running around even today, and most of us have um, run into them in debates where they take yes. silly things hyper literally, and you know how frustrating that is. You can imagine then how frustrating it would be to someone who wrote these passages in the first century to hear our insistence that this means you know we're, we're going to sit down and try to scientifically calculate how much. How much blood would actually have to be in the moon for it to turn to blood. I mean, it's just silly.
1: I'm thinking right now, in fact, many times that I debate atheists, and again, Quirinay's book is an example. He assumes that the text has to be taken literally and such. And they say, well, geez, how do you know what's literal and what isn't? And this is just hermeneutics of a text can mean anything which that you wouldn't mean. And my response to you is like, I usually care what's literal and not literal because I have a brain and I know how to read things. And that's just
0: how language works. We do this every single day.
1: And Uh. it's it's not some postmodern thing. Like the text has no meaning and we can take whatever it means. Like we can attribute any meaning whatsoever to it
0: and there was a friend of mine and he actually was a futurist but Mm -hmm. I think he had a point here he says the point is never to take the text literally the the point is to take the text literarily Mm -hmm. meaning you take it for what it's intended to be and I I, I don't see why this is so unfathomable to people because again they do it every single day an example I also like to use is like when we use the uh, idiomatic expression to somebody man you look like a million bucks we are not saying to them but you don't look like a million and one dollars you don't look that good you yeah. know they understand what we're trying to say and that's ex- exactly the pers- the way I'm saying to take the biblical text if we can show that these were idioms of the time
1: now let's uh, use a story that you used for it and you tell where it can be found in the book. Well, I would, I would have liked that the whole story in the book because it's just so foundational. and that's the story of the purple cow.
0: You know, I, I yeah, and you and I spoke about this where I, I think why you like this story so much and why I like it so much is we were kind of around when it was made. Mm-hmm. Uh, ten years later down the road, without that context, I'm just not so sure it's so. Meaningful, you can disagree, Mm. but basically, it wasn't anything I wrote. It was someone on a forum who who wasn't convinced of either side, but who noticed the way the point was being argued was just begging the question. Uh So, so he had he he had said, and I might not even be able to explain this well because again, I think it's so it was so essential to be be there. It's one of those things, ah, you had to be there, kind of joke, but. Uh, he, he, he was saying that when, when someone uses certain language, you can't just assume something about that language and then point to your assumption as proof. If we're going to use the example of raining cats and dogs... Mm-hmm and a non-literalist was saying that means that it was going to rain very hard and the hyper-literalist said no that means that you know dogs and cats were literally going to fall from the sky you then have to examine what it could possibly mean, rather than just pointing to the literal language as proof. So the literalist would say, but there's no dogs on the ground, therefore it's not true. And the person who is saying, but that's not what it says to begin with. You can't beg the question in saying it must mean this, and since this didn't happen, therefore it doesn't mean that. That's Mm. entirely circular. And that's basically what that parable had, using the example of the hide of a purple cow as an example. I'm not so sure I could do it justice verbally. Maybe yes. you can. <laughs> well, I'm
1: going to give it a shot here so people will know that sometime in say the 1960s or so, there is a prophet who rises up and gets a little bit of a following and says, before the time of a great event, a purple cow's hide would be seen all across America. And there's two schools that follow, the globalist and the localist. The globalist think that the whole sky is going to turn the color of a purple cow's hide. The localists think that someone's going to put a purple cow's hide onto the back of a Volkswagen and drive all across America. Now, at one point, the localists start arguing that this has already happened, someone has made the great journey, the purple cow's hide has been seen, and the globalists start saying, How can you say this has already happened? Wouldn't we have noticed the sky turning the color of a purple cow's hide? And the whole idea is that they're assuming that's what it would mean, and then saying, well, you see, it couldn't have happened because this is what it means, obviously.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's circular.
1: Right. Now, I'm going to move over verses 23 through 26 because it's about the first Christ again. We've covered that quite a bit. And let's get into the even more controversial parts here. Matthew 24:27 through 28. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west... So also will the coming of the Son of Man be, for wherever the carcass is, there the egos will be gathered together. Okay, idiot, you're saying then that the coming of the Son of Man happened in the, the 70 A.D. time frame, and wouldn't have kind of been noticed? I mean, lightning from the east and such. And does, don't people notice that?
0: Well, okay, th- th- this, this does get into the more complicated portions. This right. is where I'll grant that the um, futurists may um, have a stronger, I don't think it's strong, but I think that these are the better passages to argue about. Um, I di- put, dissect it into the, the, the three separate ideas that are being um, discussed there, the lightning, the coming, and the carcass. Um, that's that's an awful uh, trilogy, isn't it? Uh, so, <laughs> then, the can't be good. Uh, lightning, uh, lightning flashing from the east to the west, where they'll take that to mean um, something indicating something that is highly visible. And I don't think that's what's being communicated. But even so, I would just retort with, "Do you think the destruction of Jerusalem was invisible?" So um, even the destruction itself was a highly visible event. But I would argue that what that mainly is intending to communicate is to go back to judgment imagery where, where lightning was frequently used as a symbol of God's power and lightning and its power in judgment. And it's interesting that it mentions here coming from the east and flashing to the west, which was the direction of the approaching Roman armies. Um, but so in retort to the lightning I would say A. The destruction of Jerusalem was extremely brutal and visible um, and that would solve that and it was in fact described as a, as a judgment of God the more interesting part of this passage is the coming of the Son of Man and right. I think that's where the argument needs to lie but the fact is that's a phrase that had already been used Jesus um, continually referred to himself as the Son of Man which was intended to have us think back to Daniel 7, and I don't think we can understand this particular passage without understanding Daniel 7, which spoke about the the coming of one like the Son of Man. Mm -hmm. And the coming in that passage was not coming down from heaven to earth in any kind of physical way. A, it wasn't coming from heaven to earth, it was going from earth to heaven, and it wasn't physical in any necessarily way. It was speaking of receiving Mm -hmm. a kingdom kingdom and uh, assuming the Messianic throne. And I would submit that that's what this passage is, is vindicating Jesus' claim of assuming the Messianic throne. And how, in that passage, it, it, it talks about how does someone prove their rule it is to judge those that are rebelling against your rule which is in fact what happened in jerusalem jesus proved his claim that he would ascend to the ancient of days assume the messianic throne and judge his people mm-hmm. and that is what the coming of the son of man in fact is referring to here and the way to know this for certain is the fact go back to what we talked about in the beginning mm-hmm. this whole discourse was pro was a uh, prompted by Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple. Him saying that the destruction of the temple prompted the disciples to ask, when will this be? What shall be the sign of your coming? At that point in time, the disciples did not even understand there was to be a first going. Never trying to understand that Jesus was going to have to leave and come back again thousands of years in the future. Mm -hmm. They thought he was going to, within the political aspirations of that day, just overthrow the Romans and set up the kingdom then. So they understood, though, that The destruction of the temple would be a sign of judgment that Jesus would be the one doing the judgment that he would be doing it as King uh, having come into his power so they ask him when are you going to do this when will you come into your power that's basically what they were asking and that's what this passage is, is is referring to
1: when you said the Son of Man is coming from earth to heaven about someone saying, well, geez, Dee, Dee the ascension had occurred 40 years before and Jesus had already sat down at the right hand of God and, you know, Psalm 110, one says, sit until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So how could he be going from earth to heaven then?
0: This is, uh, he didn't go from, this is a sign that he, it is a confirmation that he had already went from earth to heaven. Okay. It's a vindication of his words. Mm-hmm. That, and I, and I would argue this, this, this gets into the weeds a little bit that will be more to uh, get into this a lot in my book I think it's pretty apparent when you start comparing these passages that a coming isn't a distinct time bound event. The word coming in in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think, and particularly in the New Testament in Matthew, it's at 2664, when Jesus said to the high priest, from this point on, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and sitting at the right hand of power. Coming and sitting were happening simultaneously, which is strange to a futurist Mm -hmm. view, but that's because the word coming means his reign. Christ's coming is his reign. So when people... So I would submit that Jesus' coming is this entire period of time from the moment he ascended until the moment when he shall physically return. Therefore, that makes a lot of sense at Revelation one seven, Behold, he comes in the clouds. When does he come in the clouds? Right now. Mm. His His rule is his coming. And the destruction of the temple was the first physical earthly demonstration of the fact that he was presently ruling and coming and uh, sitting. In fact, Psalm 110, that is so extremely important because his enemies becoming a footstool for his feet were to happen while he was sitting at the right hand of power. It's not something he's going to physically come down here and do. In fact, he will not return until after all of his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet which ties into the passage that gave me all the trouble in the beginning 1 Corinthians 15 because once that has happened he will return and destroy death the only enemy that will be left at the time of Christ's return is death and his return shall destroy death. There shall be no enemies after that. None. None to rebel after a thousand years. None to still have death hanging around in this millennium where you have, you know, glorified people or non glorified people living together. I don't even get that. So the chronology is very tight.
1: You know, one thing I like to say to people if they ask this is about or a uh, serpent, this is about the return of Christ. Look, like, if we go to first Corinthians 15 and 1st Thessalonians 4 We see something very definite about the return of Christ The resurrection of the dead takes place Don't you think this would have been Kind of a little important detail For Jesus to mention in all of this?
0: Yeah, this what is interesting about Matthew 24 Is that the resurrection is obvious Only by its absence mm-hmm. And that's also another big clue That this is not talking about the second coming Any passage that's clearly talking about The second coming and the consummation has as its main feature the resurrection it's not something that gets overlooked and it is at the end of christ's reign not at the beginning of it
1: verse 29 immediately after the tribulation of those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light the stars are far from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken well gee, gee this sounds like a total catastrophe taking place I mean, the, the sun's going to be darkened completely I'd look out my window here and not see anything whatsoever
0: well again I'm going to be saying the same tune this is apocalyptic imagery mm-hmm. which is completely common to the Old Testament and I would point out that um, if you have a New American Standard version of the Bible it does something pretty cool where it puts in a special font and typeface which well, those are probably the same thing, but it puts in a special typeface when an uh, Old Testament passage is being directly quoted or alluded to. And in this passage, it does that because what's being directly um, alluded to is some identical language in um, Isaiah thirteen nine through 10, which says, um, behold the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light the sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon shall not cause its light to shine it's a direct quote from that passage and that's um, <laughs> that passage has been fulfilled already in the destruction of Babylon mm-hmm. centuries before. And the world, the the, the literal <coughs> universe did not end at that time. And the point that people are missing in taking this um, hyper-literally is the utter insult that Jesus just delivered to first century um, apostates, because... Babylon to the 1st century Jewish mind was like the symbol of just like evil and corruption and rebellion against God. To call Jerusalem to, to 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 in this off this backhanded way, call them Babylon was just like the pinnacle of sarcastic insult that we miss when we don't see that. I I I gave this same comparison on Chris's show. It's like we have figures in in our own kind of historical knowledge like if you call someone a benedict arnold i mean you're just calling them the height of traitor the height of just being a slime ball mm. that's pretty much what jesus just did to jerusalem by calling them babylon and saying how babylon was destroyed is how you're going to be destroyed
1: and there are some that even take the a woman on the beast a great prostitute in Revelation to be Jerusalem as well, and some people say, "How can you call Jerusalem a prostitute?" And I'd want to say, "Have you not read the Old Testament before?"
0: Yeah, this is all language that was very, um, very common to then. I mean, it wouldn't be language we would necessarily use today. But again, we have to take the Bible on, on, on its own terms
1: before getting to the next passage and i'd like to remind everyone that this show is listener supported and we could definitely use your support and one thing i've said in the newsletter yesterday is that i am going to be studying at johnson university for my master's and it's going to be a, a couple grand just getting things started so any support you can give that was how if you appreciate this ministry and you want to see me go further with it, to be able to do more of it, to help you out there and such, please consider making a donation. You have no idea how much it means to us. If you want to do that, just go to deeperwaters.ddns.net and you'll find a link there that to help support us. That link will take you to the ministry of Risen Jesus, my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make a donation there and then you email me or message me contact me somehow or contact Mike and Debbie and say hey I made a donation I want to go to Nick Peters and Deeper Waters they'll make sure we get it and it will be tax deductible we do have ebooks for sale that I've written or had a hand in such as my book a Creed for the Ages look at the Apostles Creed or ones I've written with JP Holdings such as Defining Inerrancy or Groundless or Christian answers for this generation's questions, and even when I've written with an atheist or natural or either. So we've got a lot there, and guys, pay attention especially to this one. You want to get the lady in your life something special? Well, we've got a link there that you can go to the Premier Jewelry page. My friend Lena Cluster is in charge of this. Use the keyword love and go to the store. Buy something for the lady in your life. Then tell me or Lena about it. However much you spent, 25% of that will go to deeper waters. Now, it won't go if you don't tell us, just like the donations. But uh, you can get something special for your lady this way, and your lady is sure to appreciate it. You can do something to support a great ministry at the same time, or at least I hope it's a great ministry. Um, Dee, Dee do you have a cause you'd like to see people support?
0: You know, I tend not to do that. Um, here's my thing. Uh I want people to support causes, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to to put forth. I mean, I, I always am highly in favor of the ones that go, like Compassion International and things like that, mm-hmm. where we take our our blessings and um, help out the the least of these in, in the kingdom. So, uh, but I, I'm more concerned today, and uh, with supporting something and 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 voluntarily giving yourself to something more than just yourself. Mm-hmm. So whatever cause that people happen to be particularly passionate about um, give to it. If you don't have anything look into something like Compassion International where you know there's very few things that you can do in life that are more rewarding I think than blessing a child. Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Excellent. Well, let's get back then to the uh, look at Matthew 24 with verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then, Oh, actually, we should go to verse 29 first that out.
0: <clears throat> Did we? No, 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 I didn't. I didn't.
1: Okay, I got myself confused. Okay, verse 30. Well, we didn't 30. talk
0: about the carcass, but that's okay. okay let's, I think, let's talk okay. about
1: the carcass a little bit then. <laughs> Okay. I
0: think I think we could all agree that in either scheme there are going to be plenty of carcasses. Um, so it what what I just think is pretty interesting about that is the fact that it says um where the carcasses there the eagles will be gathered together and that the um ensign that was carried by the the Roman armies was in fact an eagle and I do see a particular reference there. But I was I was just joking.
1: You know when I was just thinking about when we were talking about the sun and moon being darkened. Uh, another parallel there that, what's seen as a good thing in the Old Testament, is a time where it says the sun would be brightened seven times over. And right. if you take it that way, I think, geez, it's hard enough to drive down the road some days facing the sun. I don't want to think about being seven times brighter.
0: Right, so the, the cosmos darkening was, was shown as a sign of judgment in the Old Testament, and then all the heavenly bodies being brighter was shown as a sign of blessing. But I can assure you, and I think the global warming folks can assure you, that the sun being seven times more intense would not be a blessing, and I don't care what level of sunscreen you have, it's not going to help.
1: Okay, Matthew twenty four thirty then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they receive the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory there's a whole lot there where do you want to start
0: there is a whole lot there and it builds upon what i had said in verse 29 i think this is a restatement of a lot of the themes um stated in verse 39 um and i have a somewhat of a translational issue that I, I, I make the argument in, in in the commentary that the beginning part of that verse then the Son of Man will appear in heaven that the best way to understand that is that the sign the sign that the, it, it's a sign that the Son of Man is in heaven it, it, it's referring to the location of the Son of Man and not the location of an alleged sign mm-hmm. though in fact the smoke of Jerusalem burning did in fact rise to heaven and was a sign in heaven Um, my understanding of that passage is that the sign will appear that the son of man is in heaven and that sign is the fact that he said he would judge um, the apostates and he, in fact, did. And and something I want to make clear here, it it came out very clearly in Chris's podcast, but I want to be sure I make this here um, in case someone just listens to this or doesn't bother to read the book. I've been very clear in my terminology to keep saying the apostates, and this is why. Um, This may seem like a little bit of a diversion, but it's important to me. There has been a lot of anti-Semitism in the church, and I think that's a great crime. And some people have used some of this judgment Mm -hmm. passages to justify that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely horrific and horrifying and absolutely inexcusable. There was a specific first century generation of people that just happened to be of a Jewish heritage that was the subject of judgment. But it has nothing to do with any kind of inherent ethnic, you know, it, it, i don't know it's just unfathomable to me that 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 christians would hate any ethnic group of people and i want to make yeah. it absolutely clear and that's why i keep saying the apostates yeah. um that in, in in no sense whatsoever should any of my comments ever be interpreted to be against um people of Semitic origins so I just wanted to make that absolutely abundantly clear because there have been people in my tradition the covenant theology position who have been extraordinarily anti-Semitic and I'm embarrassed by that so I wanted to make that clear before I had went on uh,
1: let's t- t- say something about that also because some people say the theology is inherently anti-Semitic because they say what you're doing is replacement theology
0: it's not replacement theology It's called, it, uh, that's that's a pejorative term right. um, that's okay if people want to use that but the more I think the more accurate term is something that had been put forth by an, I think it, I cite this article in my end notes if I don't anyone can write me and get it or google it Um, by Reverend Fred Klett called Expansion, Not Replacement. Mm -hmm. Um, Nobody was replaced in the kingdom. The kingdom is still fully open and, in fact, has as its bedrock foundation the Jewish people, but it has been expanded to include all people. So this isn't replacement. No one has been replaced. It has simply been expanded to include Gentiles in the blessings Mm -hmm. that have always belonged to the Jewish people.
1: And I, I could say, I'm one of the persuasion, I think you are too, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the nation of Israel coming today doesn't have a fulfillment of prophecy in it whatsoever. But that doesn't mean that you don't care about the Jewish people, and that you can't support the nation of Israel for whatever reason.
0: That gets into politics, doesn't it? I do not believe that the modern nation of Israel has absolutely, it doesn't have anything at all to do with um with uh, prophecy. That is indeed my position. And if someone wishes to support Israel, in my personal view, it should be for whatever reason they decide to support any other country, like Italy or Russia or you know, Scandinavia, (laughs) whatever. I'm probably showing my geographical ignorance here. But um, I happen... Yeah. So I do not think it has anything to do with prophecy. And in fact, Christians are persecuted in Israel. And I think our... um, position of trying to say Israel can do no wrong is as wrong-headed as saying American could do no wrong. Um, Both countries can and do do wrong, and we shouldn't be supporting either one, no matter where we were born unconditionally. Mm. I I hope that wasn't just now taken. I went from being a potential anti-Semitic person, which I dispelled, to now being an anti-American, which I also am not. I'm just saying that as Christians, our loyalty is to the kingdom of heaven and not to any particular um, earthly kingdom or earthly nation be it the one we were born in or one that we think has some kind of special prominence in the, in, in the Bible.
1: But here's something else from verse very good. What about the tribes of the earth were mourned? Did that take place?
0: Well, if the tribes of the earth I do believe is referring to the the, the tribes of Israel and they did indeed mourn mm-hmm. because the um the their their whole way of life was being destroyed of course they they indeed did mourn um i would say that um i'm trying to find where i i had uh that that oh oh i'm totally missing it it was zechariah 12:10 where it says um the, the look upon him whom they've pierced and the and the tribes of uh it says something uh, the tribes of the nation will mourn. I know I'm paraphrasing, but I got it pretty close there. And I mm-hmm. believe that is what what is being referred to there. So indeed, um the tribes did mourn. Some of them mourned in rebellion, and some of them mourned in repentance when they realized what it was in fact that they had done. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, Matthew twenty four thirty one, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and gave will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other well, we don't have much record of angels going out throughout the world in 70 AD and we don't have record of them all coming to Jerusalem either so how can this be a fulfillment
0: well there's something interesting you said there I didn't argue this in my book but the fact is since angels are invisible I don't think we would have any record of it even if this was talking about literal angels mm-hmm. I do not believe it's talking about literal right. angels but if it did I don't <laughs> I'm not so sure that that would be recorded anywhere. Um the 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 term angel um simply means messenger. Mm-hmm. I believe this is referring to the the spread um of the gospel. See, something that was going on, and we can see this in the, in the New Testament, while Jerusalem was still standing, it was kind of viewed, the first Christians were Jews, were Jewish people, um, and Jerusalem was still viewed as like the center of the religion, even of Christianity. That's why you had the Council of Jerusalem. Everything was still centered very much around there. The destruction of the, of the Jerusalem freed, the, it made Christianity centerless. And so his messengers were just by necessity scattered forth from Jerusalem to gather all people into the kingdom. And I believe that is what's being referred to there. Um, we are the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, um, was that Galatians? And his messengers, the go- the proclaimers of the gospel are being gathered into that heavenly Jerusalem, mm-hmm. even now.
1: I, I think sometimes when we talk about like, going forth and gather, we assume a gather means getting them all together in one place physically and that's not necessitated by the text
0: no I, I no and I think um, but I, 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 would, I would have a hard time imagining that Christians would have a, um, a big problem with the idea that we're gathered into one body even mm-hmm. though literally we're not fused together as one literal body so I, I've never heard any Christian really have a big problem with that and the fact is um the the word the Greek word for gathering is the same Greek word that underlies the word synagogue. I think it's like synagogo. I'm not a Greek speaker. Um so it's it's referring to the body of Christ. I I think that's pretty uncontroversial use of the word gathering.
1: Now in verses thirty two to thirty three we have the analogy with the fig tree. What does a fig tree mean to Israel?
0: Oh my goodness! If anyone listens to James White show, you're thinking of that Muslim objective. The fig, the fig. Um, <laughs> anyone listening to who listens to James White show will be cracking up right now. But anyway, um, the fig tree is it was was used earlier as a symbol of the earthly nation of Israel. Um, but oh God, I'm I'm going off track here because I'm still thinking of that Muslim objective. <laughs> okay. If says, learn this parable from the fig tree, when its branch is already tender and puts forth leaves, you'll know that summer is near. So when you see all these things, know that it's near and at the doors. While um, the fig tree can be used as a symbol of the nation of Israel, so can the olive tree. And so some people will say that this means that when Israel has become a nation, that's the sign that this will, will uh, be about to to come near but the fact is Jesus earlier cursed the fig tree so if, if that's this, if this passage is meant for it to be the symbol of Israel you have a conflict between those two passages so in this case I think going to Luke once again um, makes it clear Luke says look at the fig tree and all the trees when they are budding see for yourself know that summer is near I don't think Anything more can be made of this passage other than an agricultural illusion that just like when you see the trees blooming, you know that summer is near. I don't think there's any other application to be made Mm -hmm. more than that. So when you see all these signs coming together and happening, know that the destruction of Jerusalem is near.
1: Okay, now we get to the linchpin verse in this passage here and I think Thomas Ice a futurist scholar has said when you debate a preterist you can expect this verse to be quoted eight dozen times during the debate and that's that and I tell you this generation will not pass away until all these things take place now this is the one that really sets the time frame and gives the test for Jesus isn't it?
0: it, 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 it does and mm. in in the um in the book i lay a four prongs i think i called it approach to and to to proving because the point i need to prove on this passage is that this generation does in fact mean the generation then living, because there are alternative explanations put forward, such as, no, that doesn't refer to the generation then living. It refers to some future generations that will see the beginning of these signs so that everything will happen within the space of a generation. And and that one point, I agree, everything would happen within the span of a generation. It's just, which generation are we talking about? Some people will take, and this is not so popular anymore. I think it's completely untenable. Will take this generation to mean this race. It's primarily a dispensationalist interpretation that says the very fact that the Jewish people still exist as a distinct ethnic identity is 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 proof that um, of of the divine intervention here though there's been a lot of groups that still exist as distinct ethnic identities um, and I think ethnic identities within a Christian context is completely nonsensical Um, I don't believe as Christians we're supposed to be recognizing ethnic identities Um, sorry I went off on on the track there but the extreme equality of all men before God is very important to me Um, if you make this mean the Jewish people this is it, it, it makes Jesus' words, first, ridiculous. The the prophecy has to do with Jerusalem and the Jewish people. So if you prophesy about Jerusalem and the Jewish people, and then you cap off your pro- your prophecy by saying the Jewish people will still be around, what you're basically saying is all these things will happen to the Jewish people when the Jewish people are still around. Wow, that doesn't take much brains to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Of course they will be because it's about them. So I think it's a tautology and nonsensical and also... This passage kind of assumes that whatever this generation means, it will pass away. And dispensationalists do not believe that Jewish people's distinct identity will ever pass away. So again, that falsifies that view. So we really have to deal with what time period are we talking about here. So I make the four-point argument that the phrase, and you do have to take it as a phrase, What again... Another leading up explanatory thing. The word generation can't be taken by itself because Jesus doesn't say just generation. He says this generation. It has the near demonstrative word this in front of it. And in fact, the phrase this generation um, is a polemic throughout the whole Gospel of of Matthew. It Mm -hmm. appears over and over and over again. It's kind of like, a slur almost mm-hmm. um, that's probably not the right word polemic is better And I, uh, so my first argument is that the phrase this generation everywhere else it's used in the New Testament everywhere else it's used in the New Testament refers to the generation then living um, so if it does then we have to argue that this would be an exception and also we have to remember that in the lead up to Matthew 24 um, Jesus used there's two bookends. Um, Jesus, first, he, he he utterly chews out the the hypocrites of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees, saying all these uh, all kinds of terrible things will come upon them, and he says that it would happen to this generation. And then he caps the Olivet discourse with this generation, giving an indication that he's talking about the people then living. And in fact, if you make this generation mean anything other than the generation living back then. You may not consciously be doing this, but this is in fact what leads to anti-Semitic interpretations because you're making Jewish people of all time guilty for crimes that were committed by a specific group of people. Mm-hmm. And most people don't realize that's what they're doing, but if you look at it logically, that is in fact what they're doing, and that's reason enough to stay away from that particular interpretation. Um, point number two I make and I think this is, I should have probably made it, it, this point number one. I think it's the most important one. Because let me take as true for the sake of argument that the phrase this generation is equivocal, that it could mean them living back then or a generation living in the future. I don't think so, but let me take that as true for the sake of argument. In all the things predicted, there is only one event that was predicted that was unique. And because it was unique, it's unrepeatable. Once it happens once, it can't happen again. And that's the destruction of the temple that was then standing. You can only destroy the temple that then existed once. Mm -hmm. And if everything was to happen within a generation span of the destruction of the temple, that happened in the first century. Therefore, this generation is the first century generation. I think that is absolutely indisputable. I don't think that point can be overcome. So the way I worded it in the book was, the destruction of the temple then standing in AD 70 limits the fulfillment of the rest of the passage to the same time frame. I should have made that point number one in hindsight. Um, Point number three I made was that the other near... Temporal indicators in the gospel support the fact that this generation has to be the first centu- uh, century, and I specifically pointed to Matthew sixteen twenty-seven through twenty-eight, which is the, um, where uh, Jesus says there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. I'm sorry, there is no other way to interpret. Some of you guys standing here aren't going to die until you see something happening as meaning the people that were standing there. And if you look at the wording of that with the way Luke words the Olivet Discourse, it as the kingdom coming. I think it makes it absolutely indisputable, and I get into that in a lot more detail in my book. And the other passage I raise... I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm people, going on a tear right now.
1: Yeah, some people look at that and say, Well, that's referring to the transfiguration but I look at that and say, That's hardly a, pro- it, a predicament, prediction, even the first century board to say, Some of you are still gonna be alive six days from now.
0: See, I'm gonna make a prediction right now, Nick, and you can prove that I'm just I'm a prophet on par with Jesus. There are some people listening to this podcast that won't be dead in six days. Wow. I know isn 't it amazing my prophetic abilities i 'm sorry I have a I have the gift of sarcasm in um, matthew ten twenty three is the other passage I bring up in which Jesus sends out his disciples and say he says you won 't finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of man comes mm-hmm. me and and that 's not that large of a geographic uh, region to thoroughly evangelize, and he's saying you won't you won't finish this. So you, it's urgent; you need to do it now. You know, time is of the essence. So mm-hmm. I think those those other near temporal indicators in the same gospel, Matthew. Of course, there are others. I mean, you look at Re- Revelation and just read chapter one in Revelation. The time is near. The time is at hand. I mean, this is what I say to futurists god pretty much exhausted the greek language and coming up with terms to mean that something was going to happen back then and you guys still say it didn't how else could he have said it you pretty much ruled it all out
1: i remember but- in fact listening to some of left behind on audio and i wasn't able to get through it all not because the theology have, i thought providing was just bad
0: oh the writing but, is so bad but, it's, it's been so bad that it's become funny
1: uh, it's got that scene where Ray Steele goes back to his house after the rapture takes place and he opens his bible and somehow he winds up at the very end and says behold I'm coming soon and it's, that's like, Ray knew immediately that soon could obviously not meant what yeah. he thought it meant by soon
0: I just don't oh it baffles the mind and then the the the, the fourth point uh, which we got into actually a lot here. As I said, the context of the Olivet Discourse is clearly first-century Judea, not the end of the world. Um, again, you completed the mountains. You don't want to be pregnant. You don't want to be traveling on the Sabbath. We didn't bring this up, but it says you know, those on the rooftops shouldn't come down. Right. That was a distinct... Um, shouldn't come down to gather the things. Obviously, they would need to come down because um, you can't really flee from your rooftop unless you can mm-hmm. fly. And um, that's Superman. Yeah. Or uh, yeah. Never mind. I was going to make some other reference that probably would have been irreverent. Um, I, I, you know, today most of us are not living on our rooftops. That that was really a feature that is um, appropriate to first century Judea. So between those four points, I think it is pretty irrefutable that. Um, this generation referred to there is, um in fact, uh, the fir- first century, first century Judea. And, and I just love Tommy Ice's little quote, because it is true. If you, if you debate with a preterist, you will, you will hear the phrase, um this generation more times than you would care to. And I always slip in my libertarian joke here too. You'd make it similar to if you talk to a libertarian for any extended time you'll hear the phrase non-aggression principle about as many times as you'll hear the phrase of this generation from a preterist.
1: Yeah, let, let's talk about something else along these lines also and I uh, People, please don't take me literally on this one. But you delivered a bomb on the unbelievable podcast long before. Oh, that's the way
0: I worded it. I I, I delivered a bomb.
1: Yes, tell us what happened and why it's such a bomb.
0: Oh, I mean, Nick, you are now challenging my, my memory. Okay, it was on Daniel 9. Right. Oh, and he was, I, I was asking him about, it was the Dan, this is going to get into the weeds a little bit. Some some listeners will not be able to follow this if they're not as heavily into prophecy as you and I are. But you got the 70 weeks of Daniel and the, um, the futurist or the dispensationalist more accurately they put this gap in between the 69th and the 70th week, which is nowhere at all to be found in the text. And yeah. in fact, and if I'm, you could GD, just...
1: I'm going to yeah. pause you for a little bit here just so people can know what we're, what's being talked about. Unbelievable is a debate show done in the UK of Justin Browdy, excellent show, and you were on there talking with someone who was either a non-Christian or even old and a dispensational pastor about this passage.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, Terry Boyle, I believe, was his name. I think so. Yeah, from grace to you out there, and so they, they 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 put this gap in between the 69th and the 70th week, and this gap is allegedly the period of time we're in right now, and the 70th week will start at the. There's various interpretations. I'm just mm-hmm. going to give the most common at, at the beginning of the great tribulation, mm-hmm. um, some seven year period in the future, and nobody just don't jump on me with the whole pre and mid and all that. I understand there are some differences, so I asked him and this is a very common dispensational interpretation I asked him when the 69th week ended and we're now in this mystery period um, in in which everything that happens has absolutely nothing to do with the Jewish people by the way that's the dispensational this is the time of the Gentiles so I asked him when the 69th week ended and he said it ended at the triumphal entry and I said interesting I go so that puts the cross of Christ in the gap and there was utter silence and he was like what did he said of course it's in there i mean it's in there it's somewhere in there and i'm like he goes because he he stumbled over himself i said so basically what you're saying is wherever you go there you are i mean you you just made no sense you made the most important event of history be in this unpredicted mystery invisible time period Mm -hmm. the whole testament is about jesus and you just made him completely irrelevant Mm -hmm. and I know I completely abandoned that interpretation of the 70th week's prophecy when I realized how absolutely blasphemous that interpretation is. There's another, but most people who do that don't realize it. Once it's pointed out to them, they stumble like he did. And it's amazing to me that a pastor, it never occurred to them before. Um, but the other thing that the 70th week prophecy does that's blasphemous, and you and I may not agree here, feel free to challenge me, is I don't believe the Antichrist is anywhere mentioned in that passage. Actually, no matter- I was
1: about to state that same thing. Okay.
0: Yeah. No matter who you make it out to be, Nero or whatever you want to do, or somebody in the future, the Antichrist mm-hmm. is not mentioned in that passage. The, the only he that is in that passage is Jesus. And mm-hmm. what the dispensational uh, interpretation does is turn a verse that's talking about Jesus into a verse that's talking about the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my goodness. They don't realize they're doing that. But um, it, 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 the only prince that shall come in that passage is is Jesus <laughs> there's no antichrist in there mm-hmm.
1: and if people say well what about saying the people of the prince overcome? will come and you can say well if you read the Old Testament God used Babylon and Assyria as his people at times
0: right he called Cyrus his servant mm-hmm. um, and, and this is actually in the New Testament when Jesus uh, is giving parables about the destruction of Jerusalem he said God will send his armies and, um, and, and shall destroy those people and, and take away their nation and give it to a people worthy of the fruits of it and the Pharisees listen it says right in the text and they understood he was speaking of them mm-hmm. and so God's, ar- the armies, God's armies in that passage were the Roman armies mm-hmm.
1: Now, Didi, you and I both came from a futurist background originally, so listening to this, I'm sure you can understand that a lot of futurists would be here listening. I uh, I don't really know. It doesn't seem to make much sense to me right now. What would you say to some futurists out there who are listening to this? Thing? I'm just, I'm not sold yet.
0: Oh, uh, well... It's not. You're not going to be sold in an hour and something podcast if it's the first time you've been e- exposed to the ideas. Mm-hmm. And I hate. To, I hate to pull a read, uh, buy my book thing. That's another James James White show reference. But sure, it's not a John Loftus I, reference. <laughs> yeah, it could be a John Loftus <laughs> reference too. Yeah, buy my book. Um, but I mean, that is one way if you want the case laid out. Um, There are plenty of great books, not just mine, Um, Mm. but I think mine's a pretty decent one, Mm. and I only deal with this passage. And I know a lot of people put down self-publishing, but there's a reason why I went with self-publishing, and the reason I did um, was because I wanted to get absolutely everything, possible thing that I knew about this passage in the book. I didn't want it to be traced through, it's what... How many pages it 's like four hundred pages you know, three hundred pages just on matthew twenty four If I published with a mainstream publisher, probably would have been one hundred and fifty and half the information wouldn 't have been there. Mm-hmm. so I would recommend getting my book or uh, another similarly thorough book and going through it and at the end, you might not be convinced, but one thing I will say if you 're at all a fair reader, you will say, well, people who disagree with me have a rational, reasonable basis for it, and they 're not completely uh, bat crap crazy um see how I changed my language for you Nick you, yes, you should thank yes. me I, I, um, I do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm i even thinking that uh my wife came to disbelieve in the rapture on her own but I tried to be as charitable as the whole time we'd be driving down the road and she'd want to talk about the end time some and she'd say what do you think about this and I'd tell her what I thought from my previous perspective and then she'd say What do you think someone from my position would say? And I tried to give the best answer I could think of. I wasn't going to say, well, geez, I'm going to make up the most stupid answer I can so I can convince her of my viewpoint. No, I'm going to make the best answer that I can and let her investigate on her own.
0: Well, another thing I would say is this is a cumulative case, mm-hmm. and anybody who would say that any of their particular theological views are completely airtight and do not have any weak corners um are fooling themselves right um so there are stronger futurist arguments and weaker ones, and mm-hmm. there are stronger preterist arguments and weaker ones, but i I really do think, and again, obviously because I've become convinced, I obviously think it's convincing that the cumulative case is really overwhelming, mm-hmm. and one. Another feature I'll I'll tout in my book just because, let me explain something about my book and something about me, which can sound terrible, but in a way this will, yeah, it probably is a bit terrible for a Christian to say. I really don't do very many things for other people. I'm extraordinarily selfish. So I wrote this book for myself. Mm -hmm. And um, because of that, it has a lot of features that I like. But because I did that and did it for myself, I really don't care about making money. I didn't write it to make money. I will never make back the amount of money it put. I had to put into it to self-publish it. But it'll have features in it that I think other people will find useful. A, it has what, nearly, well, no, it has more than 400 footnotes. 440. So, yeah, so anything that I reference, I gave you where I got it from. So you can go back, if you want to chase a particular trail itself, see where I got my ideas from. And it has an ex- dense scripture reference it took me like four months to put together with a mm-hmm. couple friends so any verse you have a question on be it in Matthew 24 or you or even uh, some of the references the Old Testament or New Testament references take the scrip- scripture reference and go to that particular page the book could be read cover to cover um, I anyone who does that God bless them I get tired of hearing myself write or talk after well, about I, I get f- blessed yeah, fifty pages. I'm just like shut up. Um, but you can use you can read it cover to cover. Plenty of people have, or you can just go to a particular verse. I tried to make the arguments kind of stand alone. Mm -hmm. Um, that will help you. So if someone is not convinced but they're intrigued, I would highly recommend getting the book. Um, Because it's so large, it is somewhat pricey. I will say that for for a theology book. I think it's 2029. 2067 right now. Yeah, and and that's cheaper than Zulon. Zulon is 22 and something, so I Mm -hmm. recommend getting it through Amazon. The Kindle version is only 10 bucks, but it doesn't have the scripture index. Mm -hmm. So depending upon how you want to use it, depending upon whether you want the kindle version i love scripture indexes so Mm. i don't get books without scripture indexes but then again the kindle version is only 10 bucks so that's a bargain um so that's definitely what what i would recommend if you're intrigued but not yet convinced
1: and is the uh preterist podcast or the shows of that still on itunes
0: um no i don't do any of that anymore Mm. uh other people but because it was it was published under Creative Commons so anyone attribution required so that anyone who wanted to was able to repost it so I think they're all on YouTube from other people taking it Mm -hmm. Um, because again I never did this for money or glory or fame which is a good thing since I've got none of that (laughs) but um, so they are still available I think they're also on the Preterist Global site but Mm -hmm. I don't still personally put them out I am considering maybe in the future doing kind of a Podio books version of this book. Hmm. Um, I haven't I haven't decided yet. It depends upon what future um, projects hold because as you know, I pretty much, well, I don't want to say semi, because right now it's pretty total. When I say semi, I mean maybe not permanent. But right now, I pretty much retired from theology debate and a lot of online theology stuff. Whether mm-hmm. I'll get back into it again in the future, I never say never. But right now, I don't so much.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, if anyone can find episodes of a Previous Podcast out there, it is a wonderful resource to go to and we go into so much more depth than we were able to go to in this short time frame
0: when the book goes into more depth than the podcast uh chris Mm. had asked me on his show someone who faithfully listened to all the podcasts and read the online working draft of this book why should they get the book and i would say that in the editing process more Information got added some arguments that didn 't make any sense when I went back through it with a more critical eye were refined, so the book is significantly different in some parts than um, the draft version that was available for free online and um, the podcast, particularly when I got to I, I got much more in the book into the verses following Matthew 24 34 mm-hmm. um and I have four appendices or is it five um in the book that I included five appendices I included that obviously weren't in the online draft version and they're mm-hmm. I think they're pretty helpful yeah there's five of them yeah there are
1: and for our interest the Chris Dates show we're talking about is the Apologetics podcast and I do recommend you check it out but for now we've only got a few minutes left so I'm, Edie, do you have a, a blog or website or any way people can get in touch with you directly if they want to find out more about your position here?
0: Okay, um, and I, I, you'll, you'll recall, I put this in the intro to the book as well. Um, I there, there is a page for the book um, on Facebook, and there's also um, an author page for me um, on the book, and I have my personal Facebook account, and anyone in the world can, unless you're well, I will not want to say anyone in the world, unless you're like some kind of really strange, complete creeper. Um, I I welcome being Facebook friends, but fair warning, I I don't really discuss this position. I've said everything I wanted to say in the book. I don't mind clarifying things, but I don't debate this. If someone reads this book and isn't convinced, there's not a thing in the world I can do to convince them. Um, I don't do the theology debate thing anymore, as you know, and anyone who follows me fair warning, my interest right now is politics. So 99 out of 100 posts will be libertarian political posts.
1: Well, is there any final message you'd like to leave for the audience of Deeper Waters today?
0: You know, Chris had asked me the same thing, and that's always so, so difficult for me. Um, uh, and I don't want to say pretty much the same thing I said there. So I, I, I would just say that on this particular topic, to tie it into this topic, for in, in, in Bible study and for Christians, and it would apply in any other topic, if there's something you're interested in or that's baffling you to dig into it for yourself. I don't have any theological training though. I am very proud of the book I wrote and I think it rivals ones with people who do. So it's kind of like when we started Theology Web when uh cuz we got thrown off another forum and then people were complaining that they didn't like the way we ran it. So we said go start your own. We pretty much proved that anyone can do it. Um, I would say the same thing with this study. I pretty much proved that anyone can do it. I'm not the smartest uh smartest tack in the in the office supply drawer and i have no theological training and i was able to produce this so someone else who maybe have the same maybe their inkling in the back of their head that maybe they got a theological book in them i say go for it you probably do Mm -hmm.
1: well uh, Dee Dee, i'd like to thank you for coming on here and hope we'll see you again sometime
0: uh, uh, <laughs> hopefully maybe you'll have a political podcast
1: <laughs> yeah who knows what the future holds although you know that apologetics is my passion
0: yeah I think Chris is going to have me on one day to talk about anarchy but we'll see
1: mm-hmm. Well I'd like to remind everyone that uh, next week we're going to have Winfred Korshwin coming on talking about his book In the Beginning God the Case for Original Monotheism for now I am Nick Peters and I am
0: signing